Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Impact Boom and Impact Social Enterprise would like to thank Visible Inc., especially Kelly Cruz, for getting this event off the ground and allowing a platform for women in the social enterprise space to thrive. Impact Social Enterprise is an organisation run by youth for youth, bringing SOSET to schools and universities nationwide. On the night, a sold-out crowd engaged with a panel of social entrepreneurs, sharing lived experiences, opening lively conversation, and recognising our intersectionality. We also heard a slamming performance from Anissa Nandula, founder of Voices of Colour. Each year, we ring in our year of social enterprise with our first event. And this year, we've decided to theme it around women in social enterprise. And here's why. In 2017, the World Economic Forum handed down its Global Gender Gap Report. And its main finding, that we won't see gender parity for over 200 years. That means my great, great, great grandchildren may only just glimpse gender parity. And we can see that in the statistics, that only 16% of founders worldwide are women, though slightly better in Australia at 24%. And it's easy to be overwhelmed by these daunting statistics but we've never had greater reason to stay motivated and rally the sisterhood. And the International Women's Day theme for this year stressed just that. 2017 to now has brought this new sense of urgency. I felt as if our collective determination had forged into this one great hybrid. We saw the emergence of the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns in Hollywood and beyond, a young Australian sportswoman recognised as Young Australian of the Year, and female-led youth movements from Florida to Melbourne. It was as if I was hearing Emma Watson's infamous speech at the UN Women all over again. If not me, who? If not now, when? Well, evidently, women in business have taken this in their stride and are getting it D-O-N-E done as the OECD <laughs> ranks Australia as number two in the world for female entrepreneurship, and that's second only to the USA. And for women in social enterprise, that good news just keeps on rolling. There is an even smaller gender disparity, with 45% representation of women in our sector. And we really shouldn't be shocked by these stats. The Skoll Foundation estimates that in the social not-for-profit space, which obviously has boundless overlap with social enterprise, is 70% female. Of the School for Social Entrepreneurs Australia's 250 fellows, around 70% are women, and around one-third of board positions on social enterprises are women, compared to only one quarter in mainstream businesses. So my question for you tonight, is how do we harness this collective energy into tangible social outcomes? Which of the hundreds of different paths can we take to running our own successful social enterprises? And what resources are already out there to help us on our way? Well, tonight we have three Brisbane-based social entrepreneurs to share their SoSense stories. To kick off our panel member introduction, Makara Ramsing is a 27-year-old social entrepreneur from Brisbane. She runs two social enterprises in the youth mental health space, Ground Chai, 
which sells chai to the public to fund enterprise skills workshops for rural schools in Australia, and Ethnic LGBT+, which is Australia's only free national website providing support, education and mentoring for culturally and linguistically diverse LGBT individuals. Makara is recognised by the Foundation for Young Australians as a young social pioneer and is personally recognised by Jan Owen as one of the 10 changemakers to watch for this year. She was awarded the New South Wales Young Achiever for 2017, was one of 10 Westpac Social Change Fellows for 2018 and one of five Asian Australian emerging leaders announced by the Australian Federal Government. She firmly believes stories saves lives and has travelled around Australia in a self-built tiny home connecting with rural and regional youth to empower their voice in creating a more inclusive Australia. She also sits on Australia's LGBT plus philanthropy board, The Channel, and later this year will be travelling around Indo-Pacific to conduct an international tour of connecting CALD LGBT plus leaders around the world. Please welcome Makara. In the middle we have Nicole Dyson. Um, as a former head of department and head of year at some of Queensland's top performing public schools, Nicole has repeatedly led the design and implementation of whole school curriculum change to support future ready learning. Nicole is passionate about every learning experience for every young person in every classroom, having a transparent and powerful link to the real world that exists beyond the school gates. As the Director of Future Learning at Education Changemakers, she is a globally recognised expert and practitioner in project-based learning and student entrepreneurship, and is the founder of MAKE, an award-winning curriculum-aligned education program for high school students. In 2018, MAKE will engage almost 700 Queensland students in the role of entrepreneur, conceiving in excess of 200 innovative, scalable, sustainable solutions that make a difference in the world and for humanity. Nicole is also the founder of Future Anything, an online tutoring and learning platform and a contributor to the Foundation for Young Australians' YLAB program. Nicole describes herself as a sometimes writer and has travelled and worked across the globe in a range of industries. Please welcome Nicole. <coughs> and finally, Edda Hamar. Edda followed her passion for sustainability and ethical standards in the fashion industry and founded Australia's largest sustainable fashion runway show, Undress Runways. Now reaching 50,000 a year, the show has rapidly expanded in the six short years since its beginning. In between all of this, Edda founded her own magazine, The Naked Mag, that documents the future of fashion. At the moment, she's running an online clothes rental platform, Lana. Users from across the world can rent their clothes on Lana for a profit and you can pick up the perfect outfit for that special occasion. Edda was named as a UN Young Leader of the Sustainable Development Goals, selected as the 2013 Young Social Pioneer by the Foundation for Young Australians and the 2015 Foundation for Young Australians Young Changemaker of the Year. Just recently, Edda and her Lana team were selected among Brisbane's top emerging social entrepreneurs as part of the Elevate Plus Incubator Program for 2018, run by Impact Boom. And last week, Forbes named Edda in their 30 under 30 to watch in the arts for Asia. Please welcome Edda. <laughs> in an interview for Impact Boom podcast, Professor Joe Barricade, director of the Centre for Social Impact, suggested that female millennial entrepreneurs have an amazing facility to see latent value in discarded resources, which includes people, waste and discarded physical premises at turning their heads sideways and seeing value in something no one else can see value in and finding a business model to extract that value. Now, Edda, 
There's a huge jump from seeing those discarded resources and turning that into a sustainable, scalable and impactful business model. How have you been able to navigate tying together meaningful social outcomes and profit? What's the secret to a happy marriage between a social problem and a consumer one in your experience? I think I feel like I've got three different answers to the different parts of the question. Just to give a little background, from the, the jump from undress runways into Lana uh, was a jump from running a fashion show uh, that promoted sustainable and ethical designers into a technology space where I have a team and we have a website. So we're, we're really working in a much more scalable business model that can that can scale globally. Whereas with the runway show, we were really working locally. Uh, we took the runway show from Brisbane to Sydney and Melbourne, but we were held back in our ability to create a global impact. And I think that's where the motivation came from to produce or to start Lana. Uh, which is a peer-to-peer -peer platform for clothing rental. It was this frustration with creating local impact and, and uh, being able to see the impact that we had locally in Australia and actually wanting, like we were super motivated about like just tearing down fast fashion retailers. That's what we set out to do. It's not a healthy uh, business model for society. Um, and so that was the motivation. We're like, let's do sustainable fashion so no one has to buy fast fashion. And seven years later, people were still buying fast fashion. So we're like, well, maybe it's not working. Maybe we need to take a different approach. And yeah, I mean, I, I would always recommend the most sustainable way to find a new outfit is to borrow something from a friend. So that led on to this concept of sharing. Like, why can't we just share everything we have? And then pairing sharing up with a profitable outcome, because you can't just live off air, um, which we discovered at Undress, which didn't make a lot of money. Um, so <laughs> we thought, we've got to figure out a model which actually pays our bills so we can keep working on it, as well as having this social impact. Can you tell us <laughs> how one might join Lana? Yeah, it's free. Uh, it's super easy. Just jump on the website, lana.global, and you can sign up and create what we call a virtual wardrobe. And from there, you are welcome to list any items of clothing that you might have in your wardrobe. Could be something you never wear. Could be something special that you spent a lot of money on and you wish other people could wear it as well and maybe make some money back on it. And then there's the other side that if you need to borrow something, be it a, an evening gown or a jacket or, I mean, we'd even like to expand into things like ski gear, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, you can tap into that for four days or a week or even 21 days. Now, Makara, in your experience with Ground Chai and Ethnic LGBT+, how much does this experience that Edda maybe touched on differ from the findings that you wrote about in your thesis, um, which was around social entrepreneurship in the context of the greater economy? Yeah, thanks, Olivia. I think, um, unsurprisingly, um, I did my economic thesis in um, social entrepreneurship and unsurprisingly the theory often differs from the practical and actually being a social entrepreneur now. So a bit of context around that. Uh, my thesis was built on the work of Joseph Schumpeter who's an Austrian economist and he's most famously known for this idea of creative destruction which in innovation is this idea of innovation destroying industries as much as it's creating job industries. And that's something we really see in the 21st century, really accelerated by technology. And at the heart of the creative destruction process is the entrepreneur, the individual who innovates with existing resources to create new opportunities and in the process destroying old opportunities. And I built on that this idea of a social entrepreneur. So 
my thesis was posited around this idea that social entrepreneurship would even be a greater catalyst for innovation in the sense of people donating to a charity or not-for-profit why don't you use that same funds for someone who is so bent on the same social value, but also has a business model? So that money is being reinvested and redistributed. Um, in theory, um, you know, looking at a macroeconomic level, that seemed to work when I did the maths. But in reality, I think the Australian ecosystem, we're at the very beginning in that sense. And when I look to our counterparts and I look at more developed social entrepreneurship spaces, so. Estonia, Israel are really interesting to watch, Europe, America, we still don't see that happening to that extent. And that doesn't surprise me either. I think it's a big mind shift to go from really well-established um, not-for-profits who do some incredible work and they have their role to play to this idea of social entrepreneurship. And I think the biggest barrier we face in that space is people just not understanding what social entrepreneurship is. And if you don't understand something and that label is not well-defined, then it's hard for us as human beings to progress and trust. And if you don't have trust, then it's hard for progress. In my personal lived reality, so on a more micro level, I still see those macro trends at play. So, you know, I, I position my economy in these global trends of digitization, which we all experience on the day to day. Um, globalization, not in the sense of the physical movement of labor, but the fact that I can access skills from the Philippines, from Bangladesh, from my ASEAN counterparts above me. You know, the 620 million minds above us, our closest neighbors, and there's so much skill and resources there that we can access by virtue of the internet. And also collaboration, moving away from this notion that you need one full-time stream of employment from a job to the reality for a lot of our generation, 15-year-olds sort of entering the workforce as they progress is many jobs making up their primary income. So I still see those mega trends playing out in my day-to-day -day life, running two social enterprises, consulting as many sources of income and accessing skills globally, which is just incredible. I mean, there's so much strength in numbers and when you have a, a global collaborative pool to play with, then change happens even quicker. So that's probably the, the main differences. Can you tell us a bit about um, the operation of both of your enterprises? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a law and economics sort of trade by background and um, had the great opportunity to wor work in Deloitte Access Economics in Sydney for a bit. Um, and I wouldn't change it. It was really great being part of that corporate culture to understand how it worked and also having the resources invested in me. But I always felt like I wasn't making the impact I wanted to make and so I sort of left Deloitte um, about a year ago and um, my partner and I moved to Byron Bay because that's what you do when you don't have a full-time job in Sydney. <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And uh, I just wanted, it was a great culture to move to because it was a place where people were really resourceful and it was such a supportive community to innovate and think differently. But it was hard. Like, you know, I went from these support systems of school to university to a corporate and I was always surrounded with teams and people. And when you start off as an entrepreneur, it's pretty lonely. You know, you're not surrounded by a community straight away. You have to really seek that. And I was so used to having people around me. And sitting with that, I was really passionate about youth um, mental health. I thought it was ridiculous having grown up in South Africa to live in this incredibly, you know, privileged country in so many senses and then have that the biggest killer of people under 34 being suicide. Like I really wanted to make an impact in that space. So I started these two social enterprises. One was really personal, ethnic LGBT+. I had gone through this incredible 10-year journey with my parents. You know, I, I'm in part of a big loving Indian family of six. I'm the eldest of four kids. We're all really close. And my parents left everything in South Africa to give us a better life. In that journey, I was also coming to understand my own sexuality and wanting to bring them on into who I am as a gay South African Indian Australian woman. <laughs> <laughs> 
I realized I wasn't alone. You know, um, one in five people in Australia are from a migrant background. 11% of youth identify as being sexually or gender diverse. And I couldn't see myself when I accessed resources in the LGBT space. I couldn't see my Indian parents in them. I couldn't see me. And when I, I looked to my Indian community, I couldn't see LGBT plus resources. So I just started um, literally sitting at our kitchen table, a blog, and just put my story out there. And the letter I had actually wrote to my parents to tell them that they didn't have a choice in not being a part of my life. This is who I am. And I will bring them along with me. They will be there at my wedding, which is legal now, which is fantastic. <laughs> And they will be there for these special moments. And in light of the political um, debate that was happening at the time and, you know, the plebiscite to the marriage equality debate, that really skyrocketed because it was accessing a community that was left out of the conversation. And uh, through that, I got to do some fantastic work with the Foundation for Young Australians, partner up with Westpac, and we just started writing a whole lot of resources, first in a language that culturally and linguistically diverse communities can understand. Um, I mean, can you imagine my Indian grandparents uh, getting a post in their, in their mailbox just with one line, should same-sex couples be allowed to marry? There's no context around that. It's in a language that they don't even speak. I mean, what do you do with that? Um, so we, we, that took up a lot of time. And I'm really proud now that it's gotten to a point where it's reached over a 1,000 people internationally. But more so, we now have funds to really grow that to a new level. So if you know members of that community who want a point of report, jump online, just Google ethnic LGBT+. Let them know they're not alone, that they have a safe place to share their story. Ground chai came along because I love making chai. And um, <laughs> it's my grandmother's recipe. And it's a point of connection for my family and I. And those were the conversations that we would have around a cup of chai. And when I think about youth mental health, I think, um, you know, the biggest impetus to that is a feeling of disconnect. And so I wanted to focus on connection. So I started making chai in Byron Bay, uh, which is not uncommon. And... <laughs> I started then, um, my background is I got to work with a whole lot of cool young people as I was in university and would run leadership programs, taking young people to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, to Everest Base Camp. There was such a disconnect though from these young people coming from very city-based private schools to then rural public schools. And I wanted to make a difference in that space. So I would sell the chai to the Byron Bay community and fund these skill workshops for young people in rural Australia. And the level of poverty that exists in rural Australia really surprised me. And, and that's coming from someone who grew up in South Africa. Um, Will Kenya in northern New South Wales has one of the lowest adult mortality rates in the world on par with a village in Africa. People live till 37 there and that's in our backyard. So there's, there's a huge role I think we as cities have to play in in helping um, and distributing resources better. So if you're keen to support Ground Chai, buy some great amazing chai. I'll send it to you, I'll show you how to make it. And um, those funds go to funding skill workshops for rural schools. So I went around Australia and set up a train the trainer model with 72 rural communities. And those funds go into supporting them to deliver content because I believe it should come for a community in order to be sustainable. So that was a bit, sorry, I talked a <laughs> no. lot. But um, yeah, that was a bit about my journey into social entrepreneurship and, yeah, and reality between theory and practical. Great. Um, and you touched on uh, a little bit earlier, the jump from Deloitte. Do you remember a particular turning point? Just being in an office every day for a night. It definitely was something in the back of my mind. Yeah. Um, in fact, the Impact Conference in 2014 was a catalyst for me. I was very involved in the not-for-profit sector and suddenly 
I saw this as a viable way to make sustainable change where I could earn a living but also work for a social value cause and I knew then that's what I wanted to be and was ha really fortunate and privileged that I could make that jump so early on in my career. Yeah. It was definitely something I feel that was in my blood and especially as someone from a background where my forefathers, you know, five generations ago were taken by the British to be cane workers in the port of Natal, Durban. And when you're uh, placed in positions that you um, don't see your life ongoing, you tend to be very innovative and, you know, hardship and um, adversity breeds the most resilience and innovation I found in my experience. And so my family's full of entrepreneurs, so it wasn't unfamiliar. And that was really comforting, I think, when I look back to see, I mean, they wouldn't call themselves social entrepreneurs, yet the people they were employing were from disadvantaged backgrounds serving disadvantaged communities. And that's the power of language in that sense. But the theme is there. Yeah, it definitely runs in those who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds. Thank you, Makara. One of the great strengths of the social enterprise movement is this immense opportunity for collaboration. As we see that we're united under common banners of social causes. It sets us apart from for-profit firms vying for top spot in the marketplace. Knowing this, and in the broader context of women empowering women, what are the advantages of female-centred design in this space? I think there's a, a lot, but I, I also think there's a danger in, I really touch on what you said about the power of language. And, and when we use the phrase social enterprise or social entrepreneurship, I do think we create a niche market that takes away from the power of profit. Um, and the reality for entrepreneurship, whether it be social or otherwise, particularly for social entrepreneurship, is the more money that that company makes, the more good that company does. And so I, f I feel like the drive needs to be towards this, this model of business where we're looking at business for good or, or purpose-driven business. And I don't think that we should be caught up too much in the language of social entrepreneurship or, or social enterprise. If you look at somebody like Elon Musk, who's doing incredible work in the world to, to create traction in spaces that are doing good, nobody would describe him as a social entrepreneur. And, and so, you know, to come back to that, I, I don't think we should be fearful of pro for profit at all and I don't think that we should create this separation in this space where we define ourselves as these um, charitable spaces that don't make money because the reality is that the more money that Lana makes and the more money that your two social entrepreneur spaces make the greater the good impact is for people that you're trying to affect and the greater the sustainability for clothing that's created. As far as from a, a female point of view I also think there's a danger in an us and them mm. space where we, we create a, a thing where we say that women are better at social entrepreneurship. I don't think that's the case at all. I, I think the language and the conversation needs to be around how do we innovate and create businesses that are driven towards good for humanity um, and, and good for our world. And whether they're led by women or whether they're led by men, whether they're labelled social enterprise, whether they're labelled not-for-profit, whether they're labelled for-profit, I, I don't think any of that matters. I think it's about the why that sits behind the business and, and the human and the purpose that's mm -hmm. leading that. Um, and so I, I challenge some of our us and them and our for-profit and not-for-profit spaces and, and think about who are the people sitting in, in these chairs and, and why are they driving change and what positive impact mm -hmm. and not worry so much about whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit, whether they're social enterprise or, or, or not, or whether they're driven by men or driven by women, but looking at empowering all business to be driven towards good, I think.
So I guess this is a, a great segue then, because at Impact we talk a, a lot about uh, this concept of heropreneurship, and it's this idea that while the founder can be a main actor of social progress, it could be argued that this can detract from the social goal or the message. So rather than inundating the sector with new ideas and new enterprises that require momentum and have barriers to entry, how feasible is it that we reform and reinvigorate existing systems, industries and processes? From from a personal perspective, I, I actually think there are two key determinants for a successful business, whether we look at for-profit or not-for-profit or social enterprise or otherwise. And I think it comes back to two things. One, do you have a lived experience that's driven this business that you're trying to launch? And two, does it link to something that you're super passionate about? And we look at the concept of heropreneurship and it's because I think the entrepreneur or the person that's driving the business is actually too far away from the purpose that sits within the business. And so working with young people, we actually start and, and make, for example, now sits on, on a four-phase model when we work with these 14-year-old kids and we, we ask them, the first thing that we ask them to do is actually, who are you? Like, let's look at self. Like, what matters to you? What do you like? What do you dislike? What are you passionate about? Mm -hmm. And then the next phase that we move into is let's look at the world. So it's know yourself and then it's know your world. What exists around you? How can you link something that you're passionate about or something, a lived experience that you've had to a problem that might affect other people that you see in your world? And so I think that if you have those two things that are embedded deeply within the business model, um, either a passion or a lived experience, then I think that it's almost impossible to have heropreneurship sit within that because it's not about you anymore. Um, it's about the problem and it's about the passion and yeah. it's about the lived experience. We haven't heard about Make It Impact just yet. Will you tell us a bit about that? Um, for sure. Basically, it started from an education point of view and, and one of the things that I'm deeply passionate about is we have all of these young people sitting in classrooms every day and, and as an educator myself, I, I, do, I remember distinctly a moment where two year nine boys, um, bless their cotton socks, <laughs> said to me, why are we doing this? And I'd kept them back at the end of a lesson because they'd wasted time in class. And uh, my rule was always, well, whatever time you waste in my lesson, I'm gonna take from your lunchtime. And so they were fixing up work that they'd, um, that they'd missed because they'd been mucking about in class. And one of the boys said, um, he started the sentence with, I don't mean to be rude, but, and if you've ever worked with young people, that's a precursor for something going horribly wrong in the next part of that sentence. Nothing good comes at the end of that. And I said, I don't mean to be rude, but why are we doing this? Um, and the reality was in that moment, I had no answer for them. The work that I was doing was basically because it was a curriculum unit that I'd been asked to deliver. I wasn't deeply connected to the work. It was just something I had to do. And for that, that was a real moment for me where I looked at who I was and what I thought education could be and realised that I didn't ever want to sit in front of young people again and not have a response, not have a justification for the why, because if I couldn't justify why, then why should they bother? So what I started doing was working with um, curriculum units and flipping them. So a lot of the time in education, we don't have a lot of control over the what. Um, the curriculum is set. We have a national curriculum, but we do have control over the how. Um, and so sometimes it's not about the subject matter itself, but it's in the delivery. Um, and so I started doing a lot of work with curriculum units where we adjusted what the assessment tasks look like to therefore make it contextual and real world, which provided that why for the young people. If they could see how it linked to the real world, then that answered the question for them. And the unit that we started with was a year nine English unit and the students looked at indigenous perspectives and they delivered a monologue at the end of it. And what we did was use those indigenous perspectives as almost a platform to look at disadvantage and marginalization more broadly. So what were the decisions that had occurred 
that over a significant period of time that it had caused our Indigenous people to be in the place that they were for the inequalities that existed and the realities that were not just in our city Indigenous populations but also in our remote and rural populations and why that varied. And instead of asking them to deliver a monologue in character, we had them come up with their own social enterprise concept that closed the gap for a marginalised group of choice. Um, and so it meant that they could connect to a cause or a people that was was that mattered to them. And as soon as you give kids choice and voice, then you create um, the perfect platform for them to be engaged in the learning and see purpose in what they're doing. And so over the last three years, that's involved. The first year evolved. The first year it was 115 students in one school. Uh, last year it was 350 across three schools. Um, this year it's almost 700 across five schools. And we've changed the question a little bit in the sense that we now ask students just to come up with a sustainable, innovative, scalable solution that makes the world um, or humanity a better place. Um, and the students all pitch them and each school runs a shark tank and then we run a, um, a grand final which will be at the powerhouse this year um, and we're actually putting crowdfunding all of those campaigns like all of the winners and they'll actually launch in 2019. We embed the program within curriculum so it's not a bolt-on so kids don't do it as an after-school it's not something that affluent parents pay for their students to do from the right schools it's something we embed within curriculum um, and it's embedded within English business and we're also embedding it within pastoral care programs. And what the great thing is, it means that kids that maybe don't necessarily see business or entrepreneurship as um, something they want to move into get to experience it within another curriculum like English or pastoral care. And one of the first years we ran it, the student who got third um, developed this incredible podcast for young people run by young people for young people around mental health and they won the FYA's award last year. And I remember talking to Jordan who runs it I took him down to Melbourne to meet a lot of the FYA um, YSPers one year and the kid networked better than any adult I've ever seen, like it was out of control. But he was a super quiet kid in my class and I remember saying to him, what, what was amazing about this experience? And he's like, I would never have considered business. He's like, I thought it was spreadsheets and accounting. I didn't realise that business was a driver for me to do something that mattered to me. And so I don't think it's about the individual idea that I love, it's about having conversations with kids who are agents of change for causes that they care about. And too often, adults often say that young people aren't engaged in this world or they don't care or they don't want to, but the reality is we make them voiceless by not giving them an opportunity to care. And so programs like MAKE um, give kids the opportunity to tap into the stuff that they care about, the stuff that matters to them, and empower them to be agents of change in their world. And that's what we need to be creating is an army of people like what we saw in the March for Our Lives in America, these incredible young people who stood up and went, you know what, no, enough is enough. I care about this and, and it matters and I'm going to speak up. And if we have enough young people that deeply care about the things that matter to them and want to do good in the world, then we're all going to be okay. So I guess we touched on a bit earlier the, the startup space. I wonder if we could reflect on how we can make that maybe more inclusive for women, reflecting on the nomadic thinkers in 2016. Um, Etta, maybe you want to touch on and tell us a bit about the space that you've started in recent months? Yeah. I was in the fashion space, which is an awesome space as a woman. It's women everywhere, particularly in that small to medium size companies. Very supportive. Uh, and then jumping over into the tech industry, um, I so often find myself in situations where I feel like it's a bit of a boys club. I've identified a couple of things as a woman, you know, it's, as we all know, it's less inspiring, I think, going to a, a conference and only hearing men talk. And I think sometimes they don't realise that. It only really clicked with me recently. I'm like, oh, wow, I feel so much more 
you know, empowered when I hear people that I can relate to are women in the same space. So I said to this conference organizer just this week, I mean, they planned this conference down on the Gold Coast and there's like, it's just like a massive boys club. And I just had to point it out. I was like, it actually, for the, it's a kids, uh, it's a school conference. So it's, you know, it's gonna be 50% girls and 50% boys. And I'm like, you know, like the, the lineup looks great, but it actually is gonna make a huge difference to the students if you involve more women in, in the program. Um, and like, here's a list of 10 women. And I actually put your name down. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so I think in terms of uh, helping the space become more inclusive for, for women, it's just sometimes about like reminding that organizer like, hey, like it looks great, but how about we add more women to the program? And it doesn't have to be a negative conversation. It can be quite a positive conversation. Um, yeah, so I think for me, for me it's, and I think I really connected to those statistics that you read at the start of the evening about, is it 16% of startups that are female-led. Um, it's such an interesting industry to be in this investment space where I feel like 99.9% .9 of investors are men because you know I, I'm only pitching to, to male investors. And when you look at the statistics, when you take it one step further, out of, out of that small percentage that is female-led, it's something like 2% of global VC funding is raised by women and the, the other 98% is raised by men. And then you take it one step further and women actually have to give up a lot more equity for the same amount of money in, in today's world. Um, and I was actually at a um, selection, they called it a selection boot camp a couple of weeks ago where you go, it's literally like a boot camp for your brain and they grill you with questions to test you and, and see if you can get into this thing that they call an accelerator. One of the guys that was running it literally said, when I put my investment hat on, hat on I know I'm going to get a good deal if I invest in a woman because she's going to give up more equity than, than, than a guy. And just like real blasé, like, you know, like investor hat on, it's a, it's a really good deal. Like we should invest in more women because it's a better deal, which is horrible. But yeah, so I guess I'm in, I'm in a weird space where it's very innovative um, and everyone thinks they're like bleeding edge, but it's actually quite backwards when it comes to gender equality. Tell us about your startup space. I turned my home into a co-working space. To space in New Farm. Um, I was living overseas last year in London. I said to myself, like, when I come to Brisbane, I don't want to work in a corporate space. I want to work with where there's natural light and fresh air. And I want to design a space and just see, because I know most of the co-working spaces in Brisbane. I know the one that I would maybe consider is designed by a man. And I thought maybe if I design it, maybe it'll look different. Like I don't know, maybe. Um, so now I've completely created this Queenslander uh, which has four bedrooms and I rent out some of the rooms and I have transformed it into what I feel like is the ideal workspace and it's very, very different to a lot of the co-working spaces in Brisbane. Um, so if anyone needs a hot desk <laughs> or a permanent desk. I've been there a number of times and every time I walk in I want to stay longer. So <laughs> I guess that's a good indicator of a good space, right? <laughs> Yeah, it is, and it's a different vibe, I think, because a lot of the co-working spaces are in buildings where you don't really have a lot of natural light and there's, you know, ping-pong tables and 
video games and I like ping pong tables and video games but I also really like sunlight and air and plant. <laughs> um, so is that one of the barriers or challenges that you think would hinder women as a founder in this space or what are some of the challenges you've either personally faced or that you perceive in the space at the moment? I was chatting to someone from government, the innovation department, and I thought maybe he hasn't thought of this, I'm sure he has, but uh, <laughs> I decided to write a really long email just in case. <laughs> and <laughs> I wrote him an email and I said that, like, yes, definitely keep putting money into female-led businesses or supporting women, and um, I don't think they've really they haven't implemented the programs that are in the pipeline, but apparently there's lots coming. But for me, I was like, if if I could pitch to women, like if we had more women in the in the decision-making space of, okay, I'm going to fund what you're doing and help you scale globally, I thought maybe if we had more women at that level, well, women would be more successful at the startup level. So that's was that was my sort of solution for the innovation. I don't think he was the minister, but somewhere around there and append a very long email. Um, I don't know, and the more conversations I have, the more I, like, I, th I feel like, and it's both a strength and a weakness. Uh, I think women, and we're talking a lot of gender stereotyping here, so I, um, I would like to apologize in advance for that. But typically, I know I can't count the number of conversations I've had with other women where the when it comes up to asking for money or looking for funding or investment, and we were talking about this only tonight, it's super uncomfortable. There's something about asking for money or having to seek investment, particularly from a panel of guys, that that is really intimidating and it is really alienating. And you can believe in the passion and purpose and the value of your business and still be... Um, super challenged by sitting in that space and validating why you need that money, particularly when you're so deeply connected to what you're asking for money for. Um, and it's all, it's great to be coached, but having perhaps, you know, finding women who can step into that space, who are doing the coaching and who are sitting on those panels in charge of making those decisions around the money would would go a long way to, I think, making that a more accessible or safer space for women to move into and pitch. Um, just as much as sitting on panels and, and uh, as empowering and as amazing it is to have, you know, four women sitting up here and, and, you know, doing incredible things. Also ensuring that every panel on every day, not just International Women's Day where we have, you know, panels led by women with all women on the panel, um, but actually creating a space where we've got even guys moderating panels of women and, and vice versa, being able to create that diversity and that voice and that equality across all levels, I think is really important. Um, but, but perhaps what I, what I was trying to come about, and I, I think the degree of empathy or connection that women particularly feel to the businesses that they're trying to launch sometimes creates a greater barrier to, to leap over when you're trying to seek investment or money for it. Because you don't want money for you a lot of the time. You want money to make the impact or, or make, the, make the project work. And so it almost feels selfish to then ask for cash. But the reality is you need it. So I, I don't know, maybe that's it. And I'd love to chat to more guys about whether they feel that mm. same degree of uncomfortableness in pitching as what I deeply do. The reality is you can't have impact for the cause if you don't get the money. Yeah. yeah, I think I'll add on that, um, Nick, as well. And I think it just comes with the reality of working within a system that wasn't built by you or for you. 
as much effort and time and energy we put into girls enrolling into STEM, why are we not putting time and energy into boys enrolling into care? Yeah. And this is more reflective of previous generations, you know, try to fit, fit, fit into the system, you know, change. Whereas I think empathy is our biggest strength, you know, and, and biggest source of change and momentum and that goes forward. Um, I think something that's really not addressed in the startup space and when you're reliant on your own source of income and self-employment is the reality of those wanting to start a family, only the women can do that. And there's no measures in place at least to my knowledge, Brisbane government-wise, state or federal, to support women social entrepreneurs who are in that phase of starting a family and the support that goes into that. And that's why I think you see this huge drop-off from, you know, majority of women going through into the startup space but not reaching that VC level or that further level because suddenly responsibilities and roles change and biologically you go through this huge massive shift and the system doesn't support you in that. So I think that's an area we need to start the conversation more around to support because that's one issue that specifically affects women, all women identifying. So another big barrier is language. Um, and I wanted to explain that more because it's really, um, it's really perverse in a lot of ways. Um, you know, when you talk about women and then intersectionality in women. So, you know, female identifying people as well. And when you talk about then women of color being seen in that intersection and if you think of it in terms of a pyramid, you know, and, and as, a, as a cohort of women, you know, at the top, and I'm, I'm talking about this, um, this was worked down out of the domestic violence space, you know, at the top you have rape and you have murder. And what you have at the bottom of this pyramid is so centered around language. I mean, it starts with catcalling. It starts with, it starts with words we use um, to define and control and insult women. And it starts, it starts with equal pay. Like it all builds up this culture that it's okay to treat women in this way. So it's so important to be aware of that bigger picture and how small things at the bottom of this triangle keep leading up, leading up, leading up to a culture of it's okay, it's okay, it's okay to treat women like that. So I, I think, you know, you really have to address it at the very bottom and talk about more conversations about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so hard. It's just so multifaceted. And so my final question tonight for the budding social entrepreneurs in the room. What's one thing that you wish you had known or a resource that you wish you had access to when you were first starting out? The biggest um, impact or influence that has been in my motivation and inspiration is get a network of social entrepreneurs around you. Get other people in the space doing it. Get people who are chasing their dream as you are chasing your dream. Because there's a lot of naysayers, there's a lot of fear, people have different whys. Surround yourself with people who are on that same journey of you because that's your biggest strength and source straight up from getting your inspiration to your daily motivation because I it's a challenge. It really is hard at times, you know, but y what keeps you going is when you see others doing it and you want to be part of that journey too. So I'd, I'd say support network was number one for me. Yeah, I'd, I definitely would echo that. Surrounding yourself with people that are going to be a supportive influence is, is super important. Um, I think it's really important to, to go on a journey of knowing yourself and what drives you and what matters to you and understand that really deeply um, and hold that really close to you and really tight. As close as you hold that passion and that lived experience and that why close to you, hold your idea around a business really lightly and, and be open to people pulling it apart and, and giving you criticism and feedback on it and don't connect the two necessarily together. Um, you can be deeply connected to your passion and your why and, and hold your business concept really lightly and allow that to evolve and pivot 
based on the feedback and experiences and conversations that you have with others. And I think that's what creates really sustainable, innovative, creative, interesting, impactful business models are the ones that are constantly moving and changing. They're still deeply rooted within the passion or the lived experience that started it, but, but the idea itself is held lightly enough that it moves with, with the need. Um. I think looking back to when I first began, if I had known to put my team as, as number one, I think that having a strong team around you, it just makes all the difference. Like the, the journey is, is definitely a lonely journey. And I think the reason why I stuck with undress for six years with like zero pay was because I surrounded myself with um with a team that was in the same shoes we've we, you know we were in it together and we could share all of the lows and all of the highs um and then moving into Lana like the workplace the space the physical space that we work in the team it's like it's keeping all of that healthy keeping yourself healthy keeping your team healthy because it's such a long journey like we started Lana in December and I'm buckling up for like, you know, five, ten years. Like this is not going to happen overnight. And, and being prepared for that long journey and thinking, okay, if, I have to, if I'm going to do this for ten years, how do I make sure that I can approach every day happy, enthusiastic, feeling balanced, feeling empowered um, and having those people around you? Mm. That whole idea that self-care isn't selfish. I think entrepreneurs are typically really rubbish at looking after themselves because it's all about the cause and the passion and the purpose and we forget that all of that stuff doesn't happen if you don't look after you. I took a day off like and posted about it on Facebook and had like 80 people like it and I was both like had that millennial oh, lots of people liked it feeling <laughs> and then also was traumatized by the fact that 80 people thought it was such a brave thing for me to do to take a day to myself. Um, so you know you need to listen to yourself and, and I, yeah I couldn't agree more like look after yourself and look after your team. I'd like to thank the wonderful audience on the night for your enthusiasm and support and of course our wonderful panellists, Makara, Nicole and Eva. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter. Thank you.